0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church this morning. We'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper today, finally. It's a couple of weeks late, but that's okay. It will just mean we will be shorter time till the next one. Let's begin by praying together. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for everything that you have done for us and will do. We thank you, Father, for your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, for... The grace, your grace. And we thank you, Father, that you gathered us together this morning and thank you for your word that's alive and powerful. Father, today we ask also that you please watch over, take care of all your children and those different petitions that people have asked us for and our own people that are going through so much right now, Father. We just present that all to your care and trust in your love. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. amen Amen. all righty let's uh i do want to remind everybody who's online this morning please mute your microphone because otherwise we can hear you loud and clear and i'm sitting right next to the (laughs) speakers all right let's begin let's all stand now and sing a song praise to the lord good morning again everybody just uh reminder that we will be celebrating the lord's supper at the end of our service this morning and we're looking forward to that title of today's message is the Passover of the Jews was near the Passover of the Jews was near. All right, please. Whoops. Please turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verse 45, John 11, 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done, Jesus, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Well, one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one, the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now, the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple. What do you think that he will not come to the feast at all? Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Our passage this morning describes a time of transition. It's the transition period between the raising of Lazarus from the dead by Jesus Christ in Bethany and what's about to happen back in Bethany, the anointing of Jesus by Mary for his for his burial. So this is a transition time. There are things that are happening. They're setting the stage for what is about to come and tying together and showing the impact of what has just happened. The, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. At this time, Jesus retires with, the, with his disciples to the countryside. He as it were, takes a break. He, there's time out in the action for Jesus. He did everything according to the times set by the Father. And this is no different. And even now, as we get so close to the Passover week, when Jesus will go to the cross, even now, it's not quite time for his hour to begin. But it's not as if nothing happens during this transition. Quite the contrary. In fact, it's a time when things rapidly intensify all around Jesus We've seen, first of all, that the council consisting of chief priests and Pharisees had launched an all out effort and it was underway to arrest Jesus and put him to death. Look at verse 53. So from that day on, they planned together, notice together to kill him from that day on. In other words, from that moment on, the plan was was in place. It was going forward and they continued to work together to figure out anything they had to do in order to kill him. And then look at verse 57. We see, again, similar statement. Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone, the pilgrims were coming in to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. They were there early so that they may be purified. And many of them were wondering about Jesus. And the Pharisees were very concerned about what was going to happen. And therefore, they gave orders to everybody there that if anyone knew where Jesus was, they were to come to them and report it so that they may capture him, seize him, arrest him. That's the first movement that is going forward as Jesus retires to the countryside. The second one is that many Jews now were coming to believe in Christ. Many, many Jews were coming to believe in Christ. So on the one hand, you have the, the enemies of Christ and their, their, their plan is, is full-blown in action. But on the other hand, in the opposite kind of direction, many Jews were coming to believe in Christ, primarily on the basis of the resur- Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. For example, look at verse 45. And I want you to notice the word many. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. In other words, the, the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead was a stunning event. It got everybody's attention and that was that, that was all the evidence that many of the Jews who had come from Jerusalem to mourn with Mary needed to believe in him so lots of people were believing in him and you know you and i take a look at that and it's a it's a matter of excitement that 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 people have seen the truth about Jesus Christ believe that he is who he is but of course the pharisees and the and the elders and the chief priests start the exact opposite look again at verse 48 If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And they didn't see Jesus as the Messiah. They saw him as a threat. The third thing that was happening and accelerating was the fact that many Jews were now gathering in Jerusalem. See, it's all converging on Jerusalem and that Jesus is going to come back to Jerusalem. And all of these things are set in motion and reaching a climax when he enters Jerusalem. Jerusalem, in just a a little while from now, many Jews were gathering for the Passover. They were all coming from the countryside to Jerusalem in order to celebrate it. Look at verse 55. Now, the Passover of the Jews was near and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. Again, the emphasis on many, the emphasis on the fact that many were believing in him that many, many people were coming into Jerusalem. The city would be crowded with people, with pilgrims. That's the third movement that's going to reach its high point when Jesus returns to Jerusalem, and he will very soon. And when he does, he will find himself directly in the path of an intensifying storm of three directions, of the plot to kill him, of many believing in him, and many coming right into one location in Jerusalem. So this morning, we'll pick up the narrative now in verse 49. Caiaphas is now responding to the fears that were voiced by the other members of the council. They, they said, what are we doing? He, if we, if he continues, all men will believe in him. And then verse 49, Caiaphas stands up. He's the high priest that year. By the way, he was high priest for for 18 years. but But this is the critical year when he was high priest. And he said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. I want you to notice the concern that Caiaphas had was for the, the members of that council. They, they would look at only at their own situation, what was good for them. It was selfish. They understood. Now you say, well, he did talk about the whole nation not perishing. He did, but he's talking about the impact it would have on them. Right. They were not looking for the best interests of the people. After all, many were believing in Jesus as the Messiah. Now, Caiaphas was a typical uh, Sadducee. What do I mean by that? Well, if you if you uh, there are historical accounts of this time period, independent of the scriptures and that describe the typical Pharisee. He was rude, abrupt and arrogant. And that's exactly what Caiaphas is. And he shows it here. He basically turns to the others and says, you're stupid. You idiot. I mean, that's what he's basically saying. You don't know anything. As far as he was concerned, the answer was staring them right in the face. And all they needed was somebody to state it and and they would be off and running with the plan. Now, Caiaphas knew his audience. After all, he was one of them. And he understood at this point in time that they didn't care about the, any finer points of justice or fairness. They weren't there to administer justice or to be fair to Jesus. They only wanted to get rid of their problem. That's how they saw this whole thing. It was a big problem. We got to get rid of it. Why? Because they wanted to hold on to their power. They wanted to hold on to their prestige. So what did they do? They make a deal with the devil. Caiaphas made them an offer that they couldn't refuse. Now, the behavior of the council here was was horrific it was evil and it's interesting these were the leaders of the people these were the representatives of the religion and yet and yet you know there's uh, the the book of proverbs says that there are seven sins which are an abomination to the lord seven sins which are an abomination to the lord like you to turn to proverbs chapter six Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. You know, the Lord, through the prophets and the book of Deuteronomy, described what how he wanted the leaders of the people to act and to think he wanted them to administer justice he wanted them to think about the best interests of the people he wanted them to be faithful to the, to his word and to understand that they were just there as servants representing the, the representing the lord in shepherding the flock they would be truthful they would be humble they were they were to uphold the Mosaic law. They were to they were to always plan in, in, in favour of the people and their needs. They were to shun evil. They were to keep they were trying to keep peace among the brothers. Well, I gotta tell you, this is exactly the opposite of how this council behaved. Look at Proverbs chapter six, verse sixteen. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. What are they? Number one, in verse 17, haughty eyes. This is the sin of pride. This is the sin of of thinking you're better than other people. Number two, a lying tongue, speaking lies, speaking things that aren't true. And hands that shed innocent blood. Now, that's the key one, because, you see, Jesus Christ was completely innocent. And but but they saw him as a problem and they were willing to commit this third of the seven abominations, which was to shed innocent blood, not to seek justice, but but to say, you know what? If one person has to die, maybe innocent, but for our benefit, we're going to we're going to do it. We're going to kill him. They shed they're going to shed. They're about to shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. I mean, what better description of what's happening now than hearts that were devising wicked plans to, to arrest Jesus, put him on trial. Feet that run rapidly to evil. They were they, they were running towards the, 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 the goal that they had. They didn't care that what they were doing was evil. They were in favor of it. They were, they were mo- motivated to do it. And then 19, a false witness who utters lies. They were false witnesses to who Jesus was. They should have known who he was. He came into his own and his own rejected him. They told lies about him. You know, they, they said that this one can't be from God because he heals on the Sabbath, for example. That was a lie. And then finally, one who spreads strife among brothers. So again, here are the seven sins in Proverbs 6, 16 to 19, that the Lord hates that are an abomination to the Lord. But here's the thing. Caiaphas and his co-conspirators committed every one of them. How blind they had to be. After all, they knew the book of Proverbs. They understood that these were things that were an abomination to the Lord, but they didn't care. So they are so far away from the design that the Lord had for the shepherds and the leaders of the people, and they didn't even recognize it they they gave no thought at all to turning and be to be guided by the scriptures in other words they were, to, they were just totally guided <coughs> by their own selfish interests that's a big problem now it's interesting that they thought that by scheming and committing evil and putting an innocent man to death that those schemes would pres- preserve their fiefdom as it were that they that they, they, their 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 authority would be preserved their ability to rule the people, their, their their privileges as the leaders, as ones who look look up to with the highest esteem. And they thought by scheming that they would be able to get that done. Well, they forgot something. They thought that they could they, they were afraid of the Romans coming and they thought we've got to do something. So what if we're committing sins and and doing evil things and doing things that are an abomination to the Lord? We've got to prevent the Romans from coming after all. But they forgot something. It's the Lord, not the Romans, that decides the fate of the nation and her leaders. It's always the Lord that decides the fate of the nation and of of the leaders. If the Lord wants leaders to be taken out, they're going to be taken out at a certain point in time oh he'll let things go for a while but really only to expose the evil that is there in people's hearts but ultimately the lord decides the fate of the nation if he wants israel to be preserved it could be a hundred empires that would convert. as a matter of fact something like that is going to happen in the last days during the tribulation period in the battle of armageddon the military of the whole world is going to converge on Jerusalem because but because it's time for the Lord to protect Jerusalem, Jerusalem, to to bring the nation back from the dead, that won't succeed. Why? Because it's the Lord's will that matters. It's the Lord who decides the fate of the nation and her leaders, not the Romans. Well, what was the what was the will of God in sending Jesus Christ to, to Israel, to Jerusalem at that time? Well, the will of God, even though even though we know that what happened, put that aside. But if you just say, what was God's desire in offering his son and, and having his son come as his representative? It was so that the people would turn their hearts back to the Lord and that they would recognize that, that Jesus is the son of God. He is the Messiah. He's, they, But they didn't recognize the time of their visitation because they weren't looking at anything except what was going to preserve their nation, their leaders, their power. And it's not the Romans, it's the Lord. Please turn to Jeremiah. Let's go to the prophet Jeremiah now. Chapter 7, verse 3. Jeremiah chapter 7, starting in verse 3. You see, if you look at the history of, of Israel, of Judah, what we see is a pattern that repeats itself. And even though it's it, even though we have the time of the, the Jesus, when the, the Pharisees and, and the priests and so forth, they were just actually repeating the behavior of the leaders that had come before them. And the Lord calls out through the prophets, the primary, the leadership to mend their ways. And if they don't, then eventually the Lord is going to take out the nation. It happened to the northern kingdom. Okay, the northern kingdom was very evil, more evil than the southern kingdom. But the day came when the Lord brought the Assyrian armies to the north, to Samaria, and they wiped out the northern kingdom. It will it will never be functioning again. Now, there will be the remnant in the last days that will come back and, and, and be joined together with the southern kingdom and its and its people. But as a nation, it will never be there again at a certain point in time. The evil was overwhelming, and the Lord acted, and He decides the fate of the nation. Look at Jeremiah chapter seven, verse three. <laughs> Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel: Amend your ways and your deeds. You see that? Um, and by the way, it still wasn't too late. You know, I mean, they, up until the last moment, they could have they could have turned to the scriptures. They could have said, "What are we doing?" They asked the question, "What are we doing?" But they but they answered it the opposite way is what they should. Have. What are we doing? We're violating who, who we are. We're violating the principles. We're committing an abomination to the Lord. Let's what amend our ways and our deeds. But they didn't do that. Right. And then but notice what the Lord does when the leadership amends their ways and their and and, and their deeds and turns back to the Lord, repents, changes their heart in order to go back. And submit to the authority of the Lord and to keep his commands. Notice notice what the Lord says. I will let you dwell in this place. Not the Romans, not the scheming, but the Lord. Okay, but what? You must amend your ways and your deeds, and then I will let you dwell in this place. Verse 4 keeping in mind the, the abominations to the Lord, one of them was lying, right? Do not trust in deceptive words saying this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You know what they were saying here, essentially was saying we can't be touched. We're in here in the temple of the Lord. You know, I mean, Jesus would come into the temple of the Lord and, and basically say everything you're doing is backwards. Right. He, he would he would to- toss over the tables and he would take the money lenders and pour their coins out. And yet they were in the temple. They they probably said the same thing. Well, we're just just in the temple, right? We're we're, we're performing our religion. That's what they were saying. But it was a lie. Verse 5. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice what? Justice between a man and his neighbor. Justice here would have said, as by the way, Pilate is going to say the only... The only legitimate trial that Jesus would undergo on the basis of the fact that the chief priests and the Pharisees had him arrested and put him to death and they had their own trials. But every one of those was illegal. It was unjust. It was unfair. It was unrighteous. The only one that was official was Pilate because he had the authority really from God to rule. And what did he say? He says, this is an innocent man. This is an innocent man and that of course is what everybody along the way should have, at some point you would think somebody among the Pharisees who knew the law inside and out would realize you know a man can't be put to death if he's innocent they had it, but the, instead they took the lies of the witnesses right the exact opposite if you truly amend your ways and your deeds if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor if you do not oppress the alien the orphan or the widow. I'm going to stop here. It's, it's not in the Gospel of John, but it, in the Gospel of Matthew, we find out that the Pharisees were, were the ones that were taking all the resources, the money from the widows for their own benefit. Right? They were, again, oppressing the widow. Do not shed, and here's the key, do not shed innocent blood in this place. No, walk after other gods to your own ruin. Then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. The Lord gave the land to the fathers. The Lord decides whether the people will dwell in that place and in that land or not. Now, Caiaphas, when he said what he did, he was speaking only for one reason. He was trying to persuade the others to agree to his plan, his very wicked plan. That's the only reason he's going to say what he will say here. But I want you to notice something in verses 49 to 51. Let's read them again. 52. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Verse 51. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative. But being high priest that year, he prophesied. Now, I want to point out that if, if, if in the Old Testament, the high priest did have the function of being a prophet. They, there would be times when they would come to the, to the high priest and they would ask for a ruling or they would ask for guidance. And he would have the ability, the Lord gave him the ability to prophesy what's going to happen. And that's what's being said here. You know, the, the Lord is, 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 is a stickler for procedure. And he understood that, that he wanted the high priest to say something in his capacity as high priest. Even if the high priest himself, Caiaphas, had no idea what he was saying in terms of its real meaning. See, the wrath of man praises God. Right? They meant it for evil. God is going to turn it to good. Verse 51. Now he did not say this on his own initiative. Now his own initiative was to persuade the others to agree with his wicked plan to arrest an innocent man. But he, he, so he wasn't saying this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied what, that Jesus was going to die for the nation, that Jesus was going to die for the nation. He was going to die for the nation, but not in the way that Caiaphas thought. You see, Jesus was operating on a spiritual level. He was operating according to his father's plan to redeem the nation, to redeem the nation from their sins. And not only for that nation only, verse 52, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That he might gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad in other countries as well. Earlier in chapter 10, Jesus said, I have another flock. And I must gather them together and make them together with the Jews, one people, one flock. And he's looking forward to the church when he says that when made up of of both Jew and Gentile. So even though Caiaphas only meant evil when he said what he did, in fact, unbeknownst to him, he uttered a great prophecy. Because after all, this man, Jesus, the one whom Caiaphas hated above anybody else, is the savior of the world. And little did Caiaphas know that by condemning Jesus to death, he ensured that Jesus would be glorified to the max. He, he, he couldn't imagine how opposite the effect of what his words would bring about to what he intended He intended to humiliate Jesus, to put him to death, condemn him. But yet, the series of events that he put into motion with this plot, with this plan, led to that hour when Jesus would be most glorified. I want you to see that now. So please turn to John chapter 12, (coughs) verse 23. John chapter 12, verse 23. And Jesus answered them, saying, notice, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, we've been waiting for this hour as we've, as we've walked with Jesus through the different events of this gospel. And he again and again, he would say, my hour has not yet come. He said that to his mother when his mother wanted him to do something about the fact that the wine had run out at the wedding in Cana. He, he said this, he said this uh, again when his brothers in chapter 7 wanted him to go down to the feast. In that case, it, it was the fe- Feast of Booths. And he said, no, my hour has not yet come. He would say later on to his disciples, are there not 12 hours in the day? My hour has not yet come. There's still time for, for me to execute more of the things that my father has planned for my life before the hour comes. But now here in chapter 12, and we'll be there soon, the hour finally has come. And what's going to happen? Notice in verse 23, Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. And how is he going to be glorified? Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. A grain of wheat can't feed anybody, right? It can't. It's just a grain of wheat. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He was using an illustration from nature, and it's true, right? The only way for there to be a great harvest is if seeds went into the ground and died. In order to allow that to happen, that new growth, that new fruit. Well, of course, on a spiritual level, that's what's going to happen to Jesus. See, he's going to die for the sins of the world. He's going to be buried. Then he's going to be raised from the dead. And then there'll be a great harvest of souls. You would have many brothers and sisters on the basis of dying. And that's why it's the most glorious event. Not only in the life of Jesus, but in the history of the world. Again, the principle. The wrath of man praises God. This is what happened. This is what Caiaphas actually accomplished with the plot that he had hatched to have Jesus arrested and killed. Because what Caiaphas meant for great evil, an unjust condemnation of an innocent man, God meant for unfathomable good. Who could imagine among the the high priests and the Pharisees all the good that was going to come out of the death of Jesus? Even though they should have known. They should have known Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. So that, that, so that the Lord's plan would come to fruition. And many souls would be redeemed. Unfathomable good. From that one seed of the death of Christ. After he rose from the dead. The apostle Peter in his first speech to the nation of Israel. Made it clear. About this principle and what really happened and how you have the plans and the plots of men. But 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 it it really if you step back, it's actually the plan of God that matters and that he had everything under control. Look at Acts chapter two, verse twenty two. Acts chapter two, verse twenty two. Is after Jesus, of course, is raised from the dead, is after he's ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit now comes upon the apostles and then they preach boldly and they're preaching what happened at the cross, what happened through the death of Jesus Christ. In a little while, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper and we're going to bring into remembrance ourselves the death of Christ and all that it accomplished, all that it means. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. I want you to notice that this is exactly what we've seen in the Gospel of John, that Jesus did perform miracles and wonders and signs, but actually not him. Right. His father performed them through him. That was the humility of Jesus. He was God in the flesh. And nevertheless, he didn't do anything except the Lord, his father, gave him the permission and ability to do it. And everybody knew it. The chief priests and the Pharisees knew that Jesus had performed miracles and that it was a sign that he was who he said he was. That's why it was such a great evil for them to put him to death to condemn him because they knew they understood. Yeah, he is the Messiah. He is the son of God, but they're so blind to their own, their own priorities that they they could even put that aside. And you know, that is something that is part of the heart of the unbeliever. The wicked heart of man is that no matter what God does to, to present himself, that they'll reject who he is. And that's, that's exactly the story in Romans chapter one. Uh, when he talks about the the in this case the 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 Gentile unbelievers and he says he said to them you know they should have known even in what was made God presented Himself to them but they rejected Him Jesus Christ presented Himself to the to the nation with miracles and signs and wonders and yet the heart the wicked heart of man can can ignore all of that and only go after their yeah. own interests. Verse twenty three. This man Jesus now delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. See that was what was at work. It wasn't the schemes of the, of the of Caiaphas that mattered. He's just a pawn that the Lord used to accomplish His objective because God had already planned all of this. He already knew everything that was going to happen, even oh even <laughs> this was going to happen, and that is. You nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And that's what they did. This is talking about exactly what the chief priests and Pharisees accomplished, right? He said this. He said, you nailed. You did it, right? You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, the Romans, and put him to death. But, verse 24, but God raised him up again. Putting an end to the agony of death. That's what happened really at the cross when Jesus died. He died and, and achieved victory over death for everybody. Putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him, Jesus, to be held in the power of death. Now, John, the writer of this gospel, if you go back now to John chapter 11, 51, let's go back to John 11:51. Because John records what Caiaphas actually said, and, and he prophesied in what he said. But one of the unique things about the Gospel of John is the fact that John provides great, as it were, theology, observations. And he, he, he explains a lot about what's happening in terms of God's viewpoint. Right? Um, by the way, the other, the other unique thing that makes the Gospel of John totally different from the other three it was the extended discourses and teachings that the Lord gives. You know, if you were to if you were to look at the Gospel of John and then just just take okay, these are the actual events that happened. It'd be a very small of gospel if that's all that was in it. Okay, it's mostly the discourses, the teachings of, of Jesus, and then the commentary by John, and he does that again and again and again. But here, here's another example of that. He said. Look at verse 51 now. Caiaphas did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. See, that's what Caiaphas said. He said, I, I said, listen, he says, you know nothing at all. You know, it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the nation not perish. That's what he actually said. But John provides more as it were, insight, more theological perspective, God's perspective, the real impact of, and importance of what Caiaphas was saying. that he didn't even understand what any about any of this. <coughs> he did not say this on his own initiative but being high priest that year. He prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only. So this is the insight that John has now. But in order that he might also gather together into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. John, the writer of this gospel, points out that. Whoops. That, that Jesus would die not only for Israel, okay, but for the people of every nation. This is another thing that's unique about the gospel of John. If you read the first three gospels, you'll see that the focus is entirely on the nation of Israel. And why Jesus came for the nation of Israel. But John now expands this. And he brings he brings into the picture not only Israel and the redemption of Israel, but the whole world. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In the very beginning, he said that. He said that his own rejected him, but, but anyone who received him, believes in him, will become children of God. That's anyone, whosoever. It, it could have been a, it could have been a, an Egyptian or a Syrian or Chinese or whoever, and that's the insight that John gives. So what, so what? Caiaphas said had an amazing import far, far, far beyond anything that he could ever imagine. Caiaphas had absolutely no idea that he had right then, in fact, proclaimed the central doctrine of Christianity. Now Christianity. Hadn't even, as it were, come about yet because Jesus hadn't died yet. But even, but what he said unknowingly, he proclaimed a central teaching, perhaps the central teaching of Christianity. And what is it? Well, I'm going to give you um, three big words right now. So take a breath; it'll be okay. It is this: the unlimited substitutionary atonement. Of Christ. Okay. Wait, don't worry. I'm not gonna I'm gonna help you eat the elephant here. We're gonna walk through this one step at a time. And we're gonna work backwards, just so you know in a moment. Okay, we're gonna work we're gonna work from what's the atonement, what is what is the, what does it mean that it was substitutionary, and then what does it mean that it was unlimited. We're gonna see all of that in a minute. But this is what this is what the real import, the real meaning of what Caiaphas has said that John saw. The unlimited substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Now, this <coughs> unlimited substitutionary atonement is actually three that three facts that interlock together to, pro- to provide the whole truth of what of what Jesus did at the cross. Right. The first one is the atonement and the death of Christ was the atoning sacrifice for sin. The death of Christ was the atoning sacrifice for sin. That was, you know, he died. Jesus Christ died for the sin of the world. When he died, he died to sin, right? He's the atoning sacrifice. His death was the sacrifice that covered every sin, sin, right? So that's what it means by the atonement. Two, when he did that, he died in the place of sinners. So in other words, we all... Deserve to be the ones who died for our own sins. But Jesus substituted himself for us. That's the substitutionary part. I'm going to go back. Unlimited substitutionary atonement. Atonement, the sacrifice for sin. Substitutionary, Jesus died in place of sinners. That's the second one. Third one, the unlimited part. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. He didn't just die for the elect. He died for everybody who ever lived and ever will died for every person. No exceptions, no matter who it is that you come across. Jesus died for that person, no matter who it is that you preach the gospel to. You can rest assured that what you're saying is true, that Jesus died for their sins, too. And you don't have to blink an eye. That's that's one of the really confusing parts. It must be for a Calvinist. I mean, think about it. When they meet somebody, they don't know whether they they don't, according to their own religion, they're not even sure this person was somebody Jesus died for. I mean, think about how awful actually that is to have that uncertainty. But it's a lie. You see, the truth is that Jesus died for each and every person without exception. The unlimited substitutionary atonement of Christ Well, let's go to the scriptures now and see what they have to say about these things one at a time. First of all, (coughs) excuse me, death of Christ is the atoning sacrifice for sin. The propitiation, the satisfied God, the forgiveness of sins. The sacrifice, that's the atonement, the sacrifice that Jesus offered on the cross. Let's take some look at some scriptures. Please turn to Matthew chapter 26, verse 27. Matthew, chapter 26, verse 27. Right here in Matthew is, the, is, is when Jesus Christ instituted the Lord's Supper. Okay. When he had the cup and the, and the bread. Notice verse 27 of Matthew 26. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it. All of you, for this is the blood of the covenant. A death will occur for what? Which is poured out for many for the what? Forgiveness of sins. That's the atonement. A sacrificial death for the forgiveness of sins. In the Old Testament, there would be an animal that would die, not for the forgiveness of sins, but to cover them. But Jesus, this is the book of Hebrews. We're going to be there in a minute. His one death was for the forgiveness of sins for everybody who everybody that was he offered forgiveness through his death that's the atonement look at john now go to go to the gospel of john chapter 1 verse 29 jesus is the perfect sacrifice for sin look at john 1 29 next day, next day, John 129, he saw Jesus coming to him. This is John the Baptist. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God. This is pregnant with meaning for anybody who knew their Old Testament. The Lamb, you can follow the Lamb all the way, really, from Genesis 2, Genesis 3, really. All the way through, whether it's whether it's the, the the animal that was slain to give clothing for Adam and the woman, whether it was the lamb that was the substitute for Abraham's son, Isaac, on the altar, whether it was the Passover lamb there. The imagery of the lamb is, is an animal dying on behalf of people. OK, so that's what that's what Jesus, the John meant when he said the lamb of God and then the effect takes away the sin of the world. Notice that that's sin singular, okay? Because sin is more than just the sins we commit. This this is is an important thing to never forget. Jesus Christ died on the cross. And when he did, his blood was the perfect sacrifice for all of our sins, the things that we did. But sin is more than that. Because, you see, sin is also what we were. It, it, it is our old man. And so he not only died for the sins we commit, but for who we were, sin in the flesh, as it said in Romans chapter 8. He takes away all of that. You know, Paul would say, I am crucified with Christ. Right? What did he mean? He meant that now I see my old man who was wicked and deserved to die actually on the cross immobilized, all right? And that's what happened with the cross. And then the blood washed out all the sins. Amazing. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. Hebrews nine twenty-six. <laughs> See, This is one of the things you have to remember, by the way and your spirituality the old man okay the old man is was crucified okay the old man was not wiped out like our sins but rather he was he was stopped Right. he was stopped in his tracks he's in a place of immobility and the reason why it's different from him dying is that there's still a residue in our even in our flesh right sin in the flesh Okay, that's still around and we still have to deal with that. We've been dealing with that from the moment we were born until the day we die. And we should never forget that, because if you forget that, you're going to be in a place of condemnation. You're not going to be able to say with Paul, no longer is it I who sinned, but what sin which dwells in me. We need to come to an understanding of that. We are nothing without Jesus Christ, and he died for the whole package not just for our sins, such that we're always on, uh, you know, thinking, oh, my gosh, I I committed another one. But rather, no, he took care not only of the sin, but the sins, but of the very nature of sin that we were born with. Look at Hebrews nine twenty six. Otherwise, Jesus would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, once at the consummation of the ages, according to the God's perfect timing, he, Jesus, has been manifested, notice, to put away what? Sin. The whole package by the sacrifice of himself. That's the atonement of, of the unlimited substitutionary atonement. Two, he died as the substitute or in the place of sinners. He died, but he took our place. He died for us. Okay? Look at Isaiah. Chapter three, this is going to set us up nicely, by the way, for the Lord's Supper, of course, Isaiah chapter 53, verse five, Isaiah 53, five. His death was the atoning sacrifice for sin. He put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. But he also died as the substitute. You see that death that he died, he died. Instead of us as our substitute, you see, it was our sins, our iniquities. We were guilty, right? We were the ones that were deserving to die, but he stepped in and died for us. That's the substitute part. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced through for our. I want you to notice the he and the our, okay? Not the H-O-U-R, but the O-U-R, right? Him and us. Basically what? He was pierced through. But what? For our transgressions. He was a substitute. He was crushed. But for what? For our iniquities. He was the substitute for our transgressions, our iniquities. But he was pierced. He was crushed instead of us. Look at the next statement that chastening. Right. For our well-being fell upon him. Our well-being. He was chastened. As a substitute by his scourging, we are healed him and us. He just he stepped in and took the scourging so that we could be healed. We were the ones who were sick, but he stepped in and he took the scourging for us. Why? Verse six. All of us like sheep. All of us have gone astray. See, that's the that is the nature of things. Right. We we go astray from the womb. The Bible says, All of us like sheep had gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. There's no exceptions here. I have gone astray. I have turned to my own way. You know, uh, one time, uh, an old, a guy by the name of Chesterton was asked by a publication, What is wrong with the world today? That was the question he got. This was, by the way, 100 years ago almost. What's wrong with the world today? You know what his answer was? I am. I'm what's wrong with the world. Why? Because I have gone astray too. I'm no different. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have turned to his own way. We deserved to be condemned, but instead, what? The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all, ours, to fall on him. That's substitution. That means that Jesus died in our place. You can't really say it much better than what the Lord said through the prophet Isaiah here. But let's see a couple other scriptures. First Corinthians chapter fifteen, verse three. First Corinthians chapter fifteen, verse three. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4 is the most concise statement of the gospel. When we preach the gospel, this is what we should be preaching right here. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 4. I delivered to you as of first importance, but I also received, Paul writes, that Christ died for our sins. That's the substitution. He died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and was raised on the third day. According to the scriptures, the death, burial and resurrection of Christ for us. He died for sinners. He was raised for saints. That's the gospel. Or in the interest of time, I'm just going to read 2 Corinthians 15, 14 to 15, because we we do have to move on. But at 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15 says, for the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, here's the substitute part. One died for all. And it's very interesting because that's, that's, after all, the point Caiaphas was making. For the wrong reasons, for the wrong, total opposite understanding, but one died, Jesus, for all. And it wasn't just for the Jews, it was for everybody. Therefore, all died. And he died for all so that we who live, they who live, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again, what? On their behalf, as a substitute. So it's the substitutionary atonement and then third it's unlimited he died for the sins of the whole world he died for every person there's absolutely no exceptions to this principle look at first timothy chapter 2 verses 3 to 6 first <coughs> timothy chapter 2 verses 3 to 6 this there's a lot of these scriptures that talk about the fact that Jesus died for everybody, that God wants to save everybody. It's really important that you know these okay because you'll be challenged on this principle. There are there are many many Christians who don't believe that Jesus died for the sins of every human being but the Bible says he did and that's why we need to know these scriptures. first, chap, first Timothy chapter 2 verse 3. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires. Notice verse four. He does. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God, our Savior, desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God. Make no mistake. There's one mediator. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus. One mediator, but also between God and men the man Christ Jesus, what happened? He gave himself as a ransom for all. He died for all. The testimony given at the proper time. <laughs> and I'm again, in the interest of time, I'm going to read the other two to you. Hebrews 2.9, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone, everyone without exception. And then finally, 1 John 2, 1 to 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, and we will, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. But here's the key. He himself is the propitiation, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Those are believers. Those are the elect. And not for ours only, not just believers, but also for those of the whole world. It's as if God understood that someday there would be people who would come around and say, Jesus Christ didn't die for everybody. And he makes it crystal clear in in 1 Timothy 2 and Hebrews 2, 9 and 1 John 1 to 2 that he did. Amazing the plan of God. Amazing the fact that Caiaphas unwittingly declared the most incredible Truth and that, and that what God, what what's what man desired for evil, God turned into the good. God's wisdom and His knowledge are unbelievable, unfathomable. Let's close in prayer and get ready for the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you this this day that you have given us these truths for our hearts and for others to know. We thank you, Father, for the amazing, unbelievable gift indescribable gift of your son jesus christ and his death on the cross for sin his death on the cross as a substitute for us and for every member of the human race and father this is this is now what we bring with us to the lord's supper this understanding these these scriptures and we would just ask that we would have an opportunity to just contemplate and take in what this really means for us and for the whole human race we ask it in the name of jesus christ our By the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. By the power of the spirit. Amen. (laughs) All right, let's get ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper. side being high priest that year prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation not for the nation only but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for sin who died as a substitute for sinners and he died for the sins of the whole world and that is what we bring into remembrance when we celebrate the lord's supper together when he died he died to sin once for all of us and that now he lives to god for every believer we live with him forever we're in union with him when we celebrate the lord's supper we bring into remembrance the death of the lord and each month we consider a different aspect of the death of christ This week, I just want you to understand that each and every one of us needs the Savior to die for us, our Lord Jesus Christ, because nothing good dwells in our flesh and all of us have gone astray. But he himself bore our sins. It's personal in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. For you and I were continually straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and guardian of our souls. As we partake of the communion elements this morning, let's simply reflect on the love of God for us sinners. Because while we were yet sinners, dead in our trespasses and sins, Christ died as a substitute for each one of us. For our receive... In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Or as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you and I proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's close in prayer. Father, help us always to receive anew the truth of the cross every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And in fact, every time we open our Bibles. Help us to never get over what he did for us there. Help us, Father, not to, not to feel guilty because he's already paid the price for our sins, but rather to be in awe and be humbled by who we were, by nature, and how Jesus Christ's cross and his blood, his death on the cross, took care of the whole package for us. And help us, Father, to understand that he did it for everybody. And then now that we have died to sin, we ought to live to righteousness and help us to live that way every day as well. We can't do it without you, but we can do it all. Through Christ, who strengthens us, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Welcome, Peter. Yeah, believe it or not, this is the. Uh, yes, yesterday was the one-year anniversary of Ruth going to go home to be with the Lord. Yes, it was uh, Friday. This Friday, weekend. yeah, and um, it can't be, yeah, and. Uh, of course, we pray for Peter. He and his family uh, had a great memorial, as I understand, to her. And, uh, and she's, with, she's with Jesus, you know, and that's, yes, what sure. that's what we're all aiming for. So, I mean, we're all going to be there someday, but she's done it. She's there now, finished her race. Right. All right, so we gather together again on Thursday, all right, 630 for Bible study. And in the meantime, find opportunities in your day, right? open in your Bible and simply reflecting on the wonder of what God's done for us. Let's close one more time. Father, thank you so much for your love for us that we know that nothing will ever come between us and your love in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And as that is our, as our basis for living, understanding that we've been forgiven, help us to use this freedom for our, for the benefit of one another and for unbelievers that we come across as well. We ask in Christ's name, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. All right, you're dismissed. Enjoy this uh, really hot day in South Florida.